2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all longsuffering in doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank thee for the ministry of preaching that has been entrusted to us, that we are to be heralds of the word of God and to apply the word with exhortation, with rebuke, with reproof, <coughs> with all suffering, and with doctrine to young and old, in season and out of season. Help us to do that today in a way that relates well to the contemporary man and bless our preaching to the glory of God, to the salvation of the lost, and to the maturation of believers. Help us now in this last address of this conference. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> so now we want to cross the bridge, as I said, and look at having heard what experiential preaching is, with its emphasis on application, and having heard an example from Bunyan and what kind of men we ought to be to preach experientially, I want to um, focus just on this biggest, fattest branch. How do, we, how do we apply the word to the lives, to the hearts of people today? How can we take what the reformers did Obviously, we can't duplicate them. You can't talk the same way Bunyan talked to his audience with those same words. But how do you do it today? So, I want to look at three things with you. First, um, I'm going to say just a, just a quick word about a little definition here of applicatory preaching. But then I want to look at some principles for applicatory preaching, some subject matter, and some forms or methods. Um, so first, the, um, a definition, and then some principles, subject matter, forms, and methods. Jay Adams said, application is the process by which preachers make scriptural truths so pertinent to members of their congregations that they not only understand how these truths should affect changes in their lives, but also feel obligated and perhaps even eager to implement these changes. That's one definition. L. Martin has a definition that puts a little more focus on the conscience. He says, application of the preacher is the arduous task of suffusing the sermon with pointed, specific and discriminating force 
to the conscience. David Murray provides this definition. Application is the process by which the unchanging principles of God's word are brought into life-changing contact with people who live in an ever-changing world. Unchanging principles of God's word brought into life-changing contact with people who live in an ever-changing world. And building off of these and other definitions, uh, I'm defining applicatory preaching this way. Applicatory preaching takes place when the unchanging truths and principles and doctrines of God's word are brought to bear upon people's consciences and lives experientially and practically in every sphere of their lives, aiming to transform them to become increasingly like Christ. That's a a long sentence, but I'll, I'll say it once more. Applicatory preaching takes place when the unchanging truths, principles, and doctrines of God's Word are brought to bear upon people's consciences and lives experientially and practically in every sphere of their lives, aiming to transform them to become increasingly like Christ. So, this is the goal. Not just that I do exegesis. Sermon preparation is not just an academic, scholarly exercise detached from real life. But I want to take the word and apply it suitably from the text I'm preaching to every area of life. Now, given that definition, let's look then at some principles for applicatory preaching. I've got probably six or seven of them here. (coughs) Number one is we are to draw application from preaching our text rightly. Preaching our text rightly, soundly. Uh, We're not to just add stories and anecdotes and morals because, well, we happen to think of something this week and we just kind of plug it into the sermon somehow and try to make it fit. In preaching, you never try to put a, a square block into a round hole. You're, you're, you're expounding the text. And it's a good thing. I wish I had done it my whole life. I haven't. But it's a good thing for you young preachers when you find really good scriptural applications to actually have a file on your computer under a subject heading of applications. And you can build that file over the years. Because there's always a temptation for a minister to use a good application for the wrong text. And you don't want to do that. Every application, every sentence of experiential preaching must, one way or another, flow out of your text. So you must first understand the text rightly, both in its context and, of course, in the broader context of all of Scripture. 
That's number one. Charles Bridges warns us, the solid establishment of the people may be materially hindered by the minister's contracted statement, crude interpretations, or misdirected scriptural applications. Number two, you've got to be sure when you preach a sermon that you make the primary application. The primary application. In other words, uh, a typical sermon that I prepare, for example, uh, I don't know, I've tried, to, I've tried to get away from this for 47 years now, and I haven't succeeded. Every sermon I prepare gets to be too long. So I've got to go back and leave a lot of stuff on the cutting floor. Because what happens is while I'm preparing, if I think of applications, under point one, I'll stick them in. Under point two, I'll stick them in. Point three, if it's a three-point sermon, I'll stick them in. But there's no way I can use them all. So then I need to go back and I need to say to myself, which ones really are the most fitting to this text and the most fitting to my congregation at this particular time in the church family's history? As well as ask the question, what really is the primary application from the text I'm expounding? That needs to have the primary emphasis in the sermon, and I need to circle back to that at the end of the sermon in one way or another, not just repeating it, but I need to, I need to drive it home at the end of the sermon. The last two minutes of your sermon, and the first two minutes of your sermon may well be the most important, because if your first two minutes are boring, you'll lose half the congregation. And if the last two don't drive home the main point, people may forget what the main point is. So make the primary application the primary application. And to get at that rightly, you need to ask the question, what was the original application to the original audience at the original time of writing? And how does that original application, how can I apply it to people today in authenticity of how, to, to the culture today that I'm working in and to the congregation that I'm working in? So, you can have too many applications. Someone said, then you're turning a monopod into a centipede with a hundred legs, and people will forget most of your applications. So it's better, it's better, even though you do have to apply every point, it's better to have four, five, six applications in a sermon than, than 20, 25 applications. So, Jay Adams said this, the truth God revealed in Scripture came in applied form and should be reapplied to the same sort of people for the same purposes for which it was originally given. That is to say, truth should be applied today as God originally applied it. It doesn't mean you use archaic words, it doesn't mean you use archaic examples, but you take the same truth and you say, how can I say that in contemporary language to my people today? Three, I hinted at this already, make applications throughout your sermon. Make application throughout your sermon. 
John Brodus, who wrote that famous book, Preparation and Delivery of Sermons, which we use for many years as a textbook, said this, The application in a sermon is not merely an appendage to the discussion, nor a subordinate part of the sermon, but it is the main thing to be done. The main thing to be done. Daniel Webster said, There are three things I'm looking for in every sermon. Application, application, application. I want to know, I want to know what this text says to me today, in my situation, in my spiritual condition, in my family, at my work, in my life. And so, even your introductions and your conclusions should, should work together to this end. The introduction of your sermon. You see, you want to apply to the hearer in such a way that by the time you finish your introduction, which hopefully is no longer than two minutes, normatively, that people say, from that two-minute introduction, I've got to hear this sermon. This sounds like this sermon, this subject, is very important for me today. It's got something to say to me today. So, in seminary, we sometimes joke a little bit about uh, Lloyd-Jones's sermons because I don't know if you're familiar with his introductions, but almost near the end of half of his introductions, he says something like this. So this is the very most important subject I could ever bring to you. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe it's a little bit exaggerated. But you understand what Lloyd-Jones is doing. He's saying... I've got a burden to bring to you of something that you really need to listen to because this is the Word of God buried on your life and this is very, very important. And uh, obviously in that two minutes, you're showing people why this is important. Or you're using the introduction to arouse interest for a subject that maybe they don't think is important, but you use the introduction to make it interesting so it becomes important. A lot more to be said there, but uh, I think you got the main, main point. Number four, prepare and pray for your applications. There's too many pastors today who think, well, I've done the exegesis, and I'll just let the applications come spontaneously in my sermon. Well, that's a very poor way of doing it. Because, yes, the Holy Spirit may give you insight as you preach, to one or two applications, but far better to pray over it in your study and spend three, four hours thinking about applications. Say it takes you 12 hours to prepare a sermon. I would think at least 25% of your time would go into applications. What do my people need to hear from this particular text and this particular sermon? So pray about this. And, and hopefully, if you have the luxury to start preparing your sermon for the next Lord's Day, on say on a Tuesday, and you have time throughout the week, and you not only are mastering the text, but the text is mastering you so that it's in your blood. It's in your blood. I often say to my students, you know that a text is, a text is really in your blood when you can hardly take a shower without thinking about it. 
You know, you, you just, it's with you wherever you go. And your mind is turning over possible applications. Um, maybe sometimes even losing some sleep over it. But you're, you're just wrestling, wrestling, wrestling with applications for your congregation. That's the hard work, but it's also rewarding work. And when you, when you settle on applications that you know are fitting for your congregation, uh, I, I don't know about you, but when that happens for me, when I feel like my applications, I've got them down, not necessarily word for word, but got the, got, got the application down that I want to say, and I know that that application is important and is good for the congregation. That gives, that puts, that puts wind into your sails. And it gives you, even though you tremble to preach, it gives you a passion to go on and preach. It makes you feel ready to preach. Because you know you've got something important to say to your people. And uh, sometimes I'll say to my wife, if I could somehow just preach this sermon with the thoughts that I have down here, and if I could really communicate what I've meditated on in the study, because I've really felt help this week by the Holy Spirit to prepare this sermon, I, I, I just can't wait to preach it. Other times, of course, I say to her, yeah, I, just, I worked all week on this, and I, st I still don't feel it's right. I, I just... Oh my, I'd, I'd give $5,000 if I didn't have to preach this morning. I, I just can't, I can't preach. I, I, I just can't do it. Those are other times. In fact, half a dozen times a year maybe, I, huh, we're driving to church and I'm just driving quietly. My wife looks at me. She sees I'm extra quiet. And she says, uh, you've got it again, don't you? I go, yeah. I just, I just can't be the mouthpiece of God. It's just, I just, I'm not ready to preach. And she'll just lean forward and she'll, she'll put her hand on my wrist and say, it's okay, honey. He'll help you one more time. <gasps> one more time. Oh, one more time, Lord. Please, please, please. <laughs> one more time. You see, so it's not always that you're going to feel, I've got the best applications possible for this sermon. Sometimes you just have to go preach, even though you've tried. But Sunday morning's there. You, you, you know, the time is up. And you've got to do it. And you've got to go forward. And then when you go forward in dependence on God, you, you will experience quite often when you're the most needy, when you're the weakest, even perhaps you're feeling physically ill, the Lord knows how to pour out his strength into your weakness. And sometimes your most poorly prepared sermons actually go the best. And sometimes your very well prepared sermons, yes, go well. But other times they don't go well at all. That's why I say you need the Holy Spirit both places. In your study and on the pulpit. And as you prepare and pray for these applications, pray all the way to the end. Pray all the way to the end. I think I've tried to maintain this principle 
uh, all my life, and for the most part, I follow through on it. It's not always possible, especially when you're preaching in another country and someone's house and things. But try to save the last half hour before you go on the pulpit. Try to save that last half hour to just be alone, go over your sermon notes one more time, probably the fourth or fifth time, and uh, pray about it. Pray, pray, pray all the way to church. And then, in our tradition, we, um, when the office bearers and the minister comes out, we, the minister prays at the bottom of the pulpit and the whole congregation is praying silently. And we pray for about a minute and then we come up on the pulpit. And if you knew my prayers, if you knew my prayers at the foot of the pulpit, you probably wouldn't have much respect for me because they're not very coherent. I'm just saying something like this. Oh, Lord, help. Oh, God, one more time. Please, Lord. Power, Lord. Help, Lord. <laughs> and I was at one point very discouraged with my prayers at the foot of the pulpit. I thought, they're really, really poor. And then I got a huge encouragement by reading George Whitfield's sermons. He says, sometimes, just before I preach, he said, my prayers are so poor. All I can pray is for power, power, Lord, power, Lord, power, Lord. I go, Whitfield? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thank you, Whitfield. But you see, the point is, you feel the weight of what you're about to do. You feel the weight of your responsibility. You're going to apply the word. Woe be to me if I apply the word the wrong way. Woe be to me if I'm a poor physician of souls. So you need to pray to the end and prepare to the end. Now, number five, make applications contemporary. Make them contemporary. Say you find this wonderful application in the Spurgeon, of, the Spurgeon sermon. By the way, Spurgeon has some really good applications in his sermons and illustrations. And uh, I have this habit. After my sermon's entirely prepared, I'll go to the index of Spurgeon's sermons. And I'll just see if he preached a sermon on this text. And about 50% of the time he has. And I'll pull it out. Sometimes he's preached three or four of them on it. And uh, I'll just skim the first sentence of each paragraph. See what he's saying. It may be five minutes per sermon. But once in a while, an application will jump out at me. I say, why didn't I think of that? And uh, I'll add that at the last moment. And I'll tell the congregation, you know, Spurgeon preached on this, and this is his application. So they're used to hearing me say that. But Spurgeon is really good for applications and illustrations. And... Uh, but I don't always say the illustration exactly the way he said it. I don't always quote it because sometimes it's an old-fashioned language. And so I make it contemporary, which is uh, perfectly legitimate. I'm sure Spurgeon would approve. Um, one time Spurgeon, by the way, he was sick for a particular Sunday, but too sick to preach. But at the last moment, he felt well enough to go to church, so he went to another church to hear the preacher. And a young man got up behind the pulpit and looked very flustered when he saw Spurgeon there. And he preached. The whole sermon was one of Spurgeon's recently printed sermons. <laughs> and the man got down from the pulpit 
And he rushed over to Spurgeon and said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Spurgeon said, what are you sorry about? The man said, you know, I preached your sermon. I had a very busy week. Stop, Spurgeon said. It was a pretty good sermon. Thank you very much. <laughs> so also when you make your applications, a contemporary, you want to... You want to also think about, are certain applications suitable for certain groups of people in the church? Or is this application for everyone? Um, but avoid stereotyping. Like teenagers, for example, tend to be self-centered. They tend to be a little worldly, tend maybe some of them not to be saved. But don't always bring them the same kind of warning from sermon to sermon, as if none of them are really godly, as if none of them are really wanting to grow in grace. Uh, parents need to be warned about worldliness as well. So be careful you don't always get into a rut in your applications of saying the same kind of thing over, over and over. You, you do want to have some surprising applications, too, that hit home on people's consciences that maybe they're not expecting to hear. But sometimes you want to distinguish between parents and, and children and singles. Uh, you want to talk to employers and employees. And you want to talk to, uh, to women or, or to men. Uh, you want to talk to Christians, of course, and, and those who aren't believers. You want to talk to old and young. Um, in our tradition, we always make it a habit since our, our young children from the age of three and on up are in their worship services. We always have different parts of the sermon where we talk directly to children, boys and girls, and we'll talk to them. Um, the problem is, of course, if you say boys and girls and then you use adult language, it doesn't help. But if you say boys and girls, then you've got to follow it up with the thought that reaches down to about ages five, six, seven, so that even young children can, can understand. So let me, um, let me say this. Illustrations also can make very good applications. I'm just going to give you one that comes to mind. Uh, especially contemporary illustrations. So I was talking about the shortness of life in a sermon. Um, a young person had died in the congregation, and I wanted to press upon young people, also with my text. I think it was, remember now in the days of thy youth, if I remember rightly, before the evil days come. And I was trying to say evil days could come you don't have to be old. I mean, you, you, you could die. You could, you could die in an accident and, uh, and so on. And uh, then I gave an example that when I was in high school, how a, a contemporary who was a, a 12th grade student uh, got in with the wrong crowd. She started getting on drugs and so on. And I warned her and she, she brushed me off. And she actually said, I told the congregation, she actually said to me, well, at least if I go to hell when I die, I, I, I'll have a lot of friends there. And 
I said, well, I, you know, there are no friendships in hell because everyone's in, in so much pain themselves. And, but you know what happened, young people? This girl got a, a tumor, a brain tumor, and she died the week that we graduated from high school, several months later. She wasn't there. As far as I know, she never repented. You don't know how long you're going to live. It could be you. That could be me. Boys and girls, it could be you too. You too can die. You see, you, you apply it in a contemporary way. And don't use too many illustrations from your own life, but if it's about someone else in your own life, that can be very good. When I travel, sometimes we experience certain things that, or certain conversations with people when we try to evangelize them. Sometimes I share those from the pulpit if it fits in with the text. And uh, those things work very well if, if, if the application fits exactly with what you're saying. So contemporary illustrations, contemporary applications are important. And then number six, make the applications very, very personal. Personal, personal. You don't want to speak in general terms. You want to use second person language, don't you? Um, Sometimes application can even be in first person. We must, or our privilege is, etc. You can use third person applications at times, but it's, um, it's generally not as, not as personal. Now, second person application, when you say things like, you must be born again, you see, those applications uh, hit home. But if you can combine that again with an illustration. <coughs> so let's say you're talking about you must be born again. Okay, I've told this illustration from the pulpit when I was preaching on John 3. I said, and, and there are people in my congregation that would be thinking along these lines. But do I really have to be born again? Because... God hasn't elected everybody. Some people won't be born again. So the logical mind goes, not everyone must be born again. So I say, boys and girls, do you know that I once said that to my own dad when I was nine years old? Because my dad was my teacher and he wrote on the board, you must be born again. And he underlined it three times. And I came home and I said, dad, I don't think it's true you must be born again because a lot of people won't be born again. And he just looked at me kind of sad and he said, well, son, if the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life, you will understand that word must. You must. You must be born again. You, boys and girls, you, young people, you must be born again. You see, just by telling that little story, I make the application more colorful. A good illustration is like putting fizz in the Coke, and it's got bite to it. It's got taste to it. And so you want to, you want to struggle 
to get these good, good applications that are personal. And then you want to make application pointed, pointed. And the best way to do that is to ask, with every point in your sermon, why is this important for the average person in the pew? It's like sharpening a pencil. Pencil can be dull. You want your applications to be pointed, pointed, sharpened. And the best way to do that is to ask yourself questions of how I can penetrate the conscience or how I can comfort specifically a beleaguered children of God or whatever the cause may be. Um, number eight, strive for balance, balance in application. Be varied in your applications. As we talked about the Puritans the other day, having so many different categories of applications. Probably 40-50% of all your applications are going to be comforting. Comforting God's people, encouraging them. But you also have warning applications. So warning people from errors, warning people not to make light of their souls, a whole host of applications. But have balance. Warning sermons, by the way, have, in my ministry, in my lifetime, I believe there's been more conversions under my warning sermons than under my comforting sermons. Um, now, it's hard to judge sometimes. But I do believe it is good for a congregation, even good for God's people, who can be bent toward backsliding, as, as God complains of his people. It can be good for them to have a warning sermon from time to time. Now, if you're preaching through a Bible book, it's kind of hard to regulate that all the time. But I say to my theological students, ideally, to have a warning sermon about every six to eight weeks, where you really warn the congregation to flee from the wrath to come, or, or, or warn them that they must be born again, or, or just really stress with them the things of eternity. Because we live in such a secular culture, because it's so easy for people to forget the seriousness of life, the solemnity of eternity, the never-endingness of, 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 the, of everlasting well or woe. People need these warning sermons. Actually, this morning we, we talked a little bit about Bunyan preaching about the fig tree. But I preached a sermon on the fig tree that was used for more people than any other sermon I've ever preached of in my life. But it was a very warning sermon, as far as I know. Now, God knows everything, but what I'm saying to you is, don't forget to preach also times of warning applications from Scripture's many warning texts. <laughs> so every preacher, said John Stott, every preacher needs to be both a Boanerges, having the courage to disturb the conscience, and a Barnabas, having the charity to console the conscience. Need to do both. Number nine, be passionate in application. Be passionate in application. When you apply, if at all possible, do it without looking at your notes. 
even if it's not quite as smooth as your notes have it. You gain more than you lose by giving eye contact to people. It's, it's very difficult for a congregation to feel the full force of something when the preacher is just looking down reading it. It doesn't seem to have the reality to it. I'm not saying you don't read parts of your sermon. But even when you read parts of your manuscript, do it as much as possible with, with a lifelike uh, power and, and, and zeal, particularly in your applications. And so, speak your applications, eyeball to eyeball, looking around. Don't stare too long at one person. <laughs> but, 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 but don't look over the people either. Actually, when I was in seminary, my instructor said, you might get thrown off your thoughts if you look into people's eyes, so you've got to look at their foreheads. Then they think you're looking at their eyes. So I tried that. Have you ever tried looking at people's foreheads? It's so incredibly impersonal. I think that was horrible advice. So I looked them right in the eye. That's the way you want to do it. Um, make it, make it passionately personal. Um, Number 10, be Christ-centered in application. Be Christ-centered in application. If you can find illustrations or, or examples that throw light on the richness and the fullness and the glory and the beauty of Christ, and then move from that illustration to Christ, it's so powerful for people. Especially if you could move from something that everybody identifies with. I find myself drafting a lot of applications for young people from friendship. You know, friends are very important to young people. And then move to Christ, that friend that sticks closer than a brother. Or to, to married couples. Talk about something about the relationship that flows out of the text and then say, but Christ is so much more. And that type of thing. So, Work off of what is most common. They're working, they're at school, they've got parents, they've got children, uh, teenagers have friends, they've got brothers and sisters. These are all fertile fields for contemporary uh, applications by way of illustration and then lead them to Christ through it. So, I'm not going to give a percentage to it, but let me say a, a goodly number of your applications should end in leading the congregation to the feet of Jesus Christ. Now what about subject matter? Subject matter. Let me just give you a few thoughts here. Um, you've got to preach a lot about God, obviously. About God's attributes. About God's truth. The Bible is a book about God, about his triune being. And you need to apply that in, in wonderful ways. There's a lot of ways you can do that. You can use quotations sometimes from the forefathers. When I preach about mercy, I love to say, Thomas Watson said, his mercy is his most darling attribute. God delights in mercy, Micah 7, 18. Uh, Watson says, God is so merciful that this is his natural default position. Yes, he's just, 
but like a bee. He only stings when he's provoked. And uh, he, he's, prone to, he's prone to mercy. He delights in mercy. Well, picture, people picture that bee stinging when it's provoked. And they say, wow, God is preeminently merciful. What a great God to go to. See, that's what I'm aiming for. He delights in mercy. You also want to bring in the children when you talk about God, of course. You want to give them impressions of who God is. Uh, I, I was preaching once on the omnipresence of God. I did a series on the attributes of God, and I used this story about two girls named Cindy and Julie who were given some cookies by their mother to take them to, to their grandmother a mile down the road. And the story goes like this. The mother said, boys and girls, make sure, Cindy and Julie, you don't take any cookies along the way yourself. These are all for Grandma. Well, they went halfway, and Cindy got a little bit hungry. She said, I don't think Grandma would mind you, Julie, if we just took one cookie. No, I don't think so, Julie said. So she set the box down and opened the box. And then Cindy said, Julie, is anyone looking? Julie looks around and goes, no one. Cindy reaches in. Suddenly Julie says, wait, Cindy. God is here. God is here. He's looking. And Cindy quickly covers the box and they take it over to Grandma. You see, boys and girls, God is everywhere. He sees everything. He knows your every thought. Now, when you talk to children in your applications, the whole congregation is listening. <laughs> and parents rejoice that you're applying the word to your children. Oh, they just are so grateful to you. But they also get the application. And often, it used to discourage me when I was first a minister that after the sermon, parents would come up to me or, or other people, and all they would remember was my illustrations. But as I got older, I started thinking, you know, as long as they get the main truth I was trying to convey, that's not so bad. That's not so bad. Because everyone forgets a lot of a sermon. But illustrations have a way of sticking. They have a way of sticking when you apply good biblical subject matter. And I know that as a fact from my own kids. Because the problem is, if you use an illustration 15 years later, people will still remember it. And you could preach the same sermon two years later, you know, without illustrations, and no one will remember you even preached it. And uh, that's rather humbling. I always say to my students, if you want to be humble, if you think you're a great preacher, you ask your elders on the Tuesday night meeting what your three points were last Sunday. <laughs> that will humble you. And then if you really want to be humbled as you get older, you ask yourself what your last three points were. <laughs> but you see, the point, the point is this. My kids used to say to me, Dad, you used that illustration a few years ago. But that told me something. People remember illustrations that apply things to their life. 
So I, I want to put a plug in for good illustrations. Not to pepper your whole sermon with illustrations, like many ministers do today, where illustrations don't even apply to the text. You forget what text they're preaching. No, no. Illustrations have to be as carefully chosen as your basic applications. They have to fit the text and the point you're making perfectly. And then you have to, another subject matter, of course, is all kinds of things about the truth about man, about our depravity, about uh, our sinfulness. And one of my favorite illustrations is uh, talking about original sin. How do you get people to understand original sin? How do you get children to understand it? It's not very easy. But I found this wonderful illustration from Martin Luther. He said, original sin is like my beard. I, I try to clean up my life. I shave it off every day. And I think, okay, all the hair is gone. And the next morning, there it is again. Because it's rooted inside of me. Sin is rooted in our hearts, boys and girls. And we sin. We break all the commandments because sin is in our heart. It's like a beard inside of you. And you can't root it out. That type of thing. And then, truths about repentance. Uh, applications about Christ. Uh, applications about salvation. Applications about the Christian. Applications about our conscience. There's, there's so many, many, many things. Um, let me move to point three, though. The forms or methods of apl applicatory preaching. Uh, the Bible is full of applications. I just want to list some of those here. And expand, hopefully expand your horizons as I do so. First of all, declaration is a form of application. Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative, said J. Gresham Machen. The sermon is really in itself an application because it's an authoritative declaration of divinely inspired facts. And so you take those declarations and you then apply them to the lives of your people. Exclamation, number two, exclamation. Even the word oh in front of a sentence, oh that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Even that is in itself an application. Spurgeon said that the preacher should pepper his sermons with many O's because of the wonder. Oh, what a great Savior Jesus is. Oh, what a great God God is. Now, I'm not saying you should do that all the time. But the point is, sermons or sentences that have an exclamation point, the Bible has many of them. And we should preach with many of them. Because the truths we're preaching are exciting. Number three, interrogation. Interrogation. You could apply things just through a question. A rhetorical question. So, let me give you an example of a, a sermon by James Hervey, a contemporary of George Woodfield. He actually ended his sermon this way. It was a warning sermon. And he said at the end of his sermon, and right behind it, he said, Amen. He said this, Having heard what you heard this morning, 
Will you dare to go out and live without Jesus Christ? Amen. You see, what a way to end a sermon. That question is an application. The application is obvious. Don't you dare live without Jesus Christ. Or you'll destroy yourself. So that's number three, interrogation. Number four, obligation. Obligation is an application all by itself. There are imperatives. There are commands in the scripture that place people under obligations. In fact, the whole Ten Commandments is an outflow of I am the Lord thy God who delivered you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you see, so God is so good to us. God has so much mercy in store for us. God is so comforting to us in Jesus Christ. Every person of the Trinity is altogether lovely for a believer. Therefore, give your lives as a sacrifice as we saw the other day. Romans 12, 11, which is your reasonable service. That's an application. Live holy for him. Number five, exhortation is an application very often. The hortatory, let us therefore, blank, dot, 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 is an application. And scripture is full of them. The author to the Hebrews is talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God who's penetrated the heavens, the Son of Man who understands who we are, who identifies with our temptations, and yet without sin. He gives, he gives a perfect description of all three qualities we need our Savior to be. God of God, bone of our bones, and sinless Son of Man. And what does he say right after it? Let us therefore, because we have sinless Son of God, Son of Man as our Savior, come boldly to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Six, motivation is an application. Sometimes we just need to motivate people. I have a sermon on holiness, and uh, my last point is encouragements to motivate holiness. One of them is holiness is for your good and for God's glory. One of, us, one of them is holiness gives validity to your Christianity. One of, one of them is holiness fits us for heaven. These are motivations applicatory motivations to encourage your hearer to do the sermon. Number seven, imitation. Imitation. There are certain examples of scripture people that are so worthy to be imitated. Actually, the Bible gives us examples of people that we should not imitate and people that we should uh, Caleb is one of my favorite sermons to preach. I love preaching on Caleb. Because he, he, he followed the Lord fully. Even when the people took up stones to stone him to death. And then fully through the wilderness for 40 years, observing an average of 40 funerals every single day for 40 years. And he comes out at the end and it says, God gave him the inheritance of Hebron, because he fully followed the Lord God. Fully, fully, fully. 
What an example he is. Surrender your life, young people, fully for the Lord. Be a Caleb. Walk in the ways of God no matter what man has to say about you. Imitation. Number eight, illustration or metaphor. Illustration or metaphor. We talked about illustrations already. Uh, Metaphors. This is like that. Uh, You can move from one thing to the other. Uh, And and that can be so, so, so powerful. Uh, You might talk about someone's great suffering. Maybe who's in the news right now. and What a tragedy they went through. And then you might turn right from there and say, but do you realize what Christ went through for you, my friend? Something far greater, far greater. And so you make comparisons. Uh, Number nine, quotations. Quotations. Uh, How often should you quote other people in sermons? Well, it varies. There's no right or wrong answer. But let me say this. Good, carefully chosen quotations can add a lot to a sermon. Most quotations, of course, should be scripture texts. But to quote people, three, four, five trustworthy people, three, four, five times a sermon, can just add spice to the sermon and add power to the sermon. Uh, and often people will remember the quotation. But don't, don't do it, of course, um, you know, a couple dozen times in a sermon because you're bringing the Word of God And uh, what others say can be a help, but it it shouldn't dominate the sermon in any way. And then, number 10, conversation. Conversation. One of the best ways to get a congregation's attention is is to do what Bunyan did. We saw that. To set up a dialogue between a couple people. Oh, you, you could hear a pin drop if I say something in church about... I was trying to evangelize somebody on this last trip and the conversation between the two of us. People are just all ears. People like to hear about real situations. But again, you don't do that because they like to hear it. You do it because it's illustrating the exact point you want to apply. So conversations becomes itself an application. And then condemnation. Condemnation. Warnings. Most of Jude's epistle, for example, is an exposure and condemnation of false teachers in the church. Number 12, invitation. Invitation. Invitations of setting forth Christ are one of the most common applications of preaching. Why would you stay away from Christ? His arms are open for the greatest of sinners. He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying, and worthy to be accepted of all. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul even said, of whom I am chief. Are you beyond the chief sinners? Why? What's holding you back from coming to this glorious and beautiful Savior who you so desperately need? Invitation. 13. Adoration. Adoration. As you preach the truth, your whole soul expands with adoration, doesn't it? And you you become worshipful in the very tone of your voice, in the very reverence with which you speak, and the very content which you're conveying. And your whole demeanor 
when it becomes a worshipful one of adoring God, that in itself is an application that people feel in their hearts. Oh, I need, to, I need, to, I need the closeness with God that that minister has. I, I, I need to adore him. I need to worship him. You don't even have to say it directly sometimes. But of course you can say it directly. Do you know what it means, my friend? To adore God with all that is within you. To worship him in spirit and truth. Admonition. Admonition or exhortation or rebuke that leads to confession of sin. Love not the world, nor the things that be in the world. For those who love the world have not the love of the Father in them. That text itself is an application, isn't it? Consolation. Don't need to say anything about that. The Bible is full of comfort, isn't it? Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Seth your God, Isaiah 40. Examination, number 16. Examination and discrimination. We talked about that this morning. How important that is that you get people to stop and think about what you're preaching about with regard to their own experience, their own soul. And by the way, when you do that, when you do that, don't rush from one question to the next. Don't be reading a list of questions. Ask a question, looking them in the face, and pause. Let them think it through. Is this true in my life? Pause for maybe a second and a half. To you, it'll feel like you're pausing for five seconds. But you're not. And then ask another question. And pause. Every question where you don't have a pause afterwards is a wasted question. People time enough to think and you're on to the next thought. That's not good. Give people time to digest. Especially older people need time to digest what you're saying. Reconciliation, number 17. One important part of sermon application is to reconcile the truth of the preaching passage with one thing or another, with your human experience perhaps, or with other scriptures perhaps, or perhaps with modern science in some way. Who can tell what you'll come up with here? But to reconcile things so they make sense in the minds of people. People say, aha, now I understand. That's a form of application. Anticipation is an application. I talked a little bit about that this morning, anticipating being with Christ forever. Oh, what an application it is to the life of God's people. Lift up your eyes, dear child of God. Look at your future. You're on your way to glory. They walk out of church, if they've heard that sermon rightly, and they're lifted up above things of time and sense, at least for a while. And they're longing for that eternal home with Jesus. Well, these are 17, 18 ways of, of application. Uh, William Perkins, let me return to that in closing. William Perkins said, The skill by which the doctrine which has been properly drawn from Scripture is handled in ways which are appropriate to the circumstances of the place in time and the people in the congregation. That's it. That's it. Applicatory preaching faithfully connects the message with the people. 
And it says to them, God has a word for you today. God is speaking to you today. God is speaking personally to you today. Hear the living word, the active word, the powerful word, the life-changing word to you from the God of the universe today, this hour. You see, every Sunday, as our people file out of church, they enter again into a world of danger, a world of temptation, a world of sin, the world of the devil. Lectures that merely inform them, inform the mind of God's truth, are not sufficient to help them stand in the day of trial. Dear brother, be faithful to your calling by applying God's word to every man's conscience, feeding the sheep, even as our chief shepherd feeds us with the nourishment of his word. Feed them in all these ways by applying the word of God to the totality of their lives. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank thee so much for thy applicable word, which applies in so many ways thy truth to our consciences, to our lives, to our inmost being, to what we say, to what we think, to what we do in every sphere of our lives. Help us to preach experientially, applicatorily, discriminatorily, so that people will be confronted challenged, invited, allured by the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, to the Christ of God, to end in thee the triune God, as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. Bless the messages of the last few days. Continue to bless Makanya College, Theological College, together with its principal, Dr. DeVries. Thank thee for him, Lord also for his moderating and arranging uh, these days of conference. Please bless him and keep him and Lene and his family in the palm of thy hands and go before him and all the instructors at Macanio and uh, staff and all those who minister in one way or another also at this conference. Bless them abundantly and be with every, every minister in our midst this morning. Lord, use these men in a mighty way Keep them faithful. Forgive us for every shortcoming, Lord. We've all got far more shortcomings than we can count. Make us more godly, more humble, more useful, more fruitful. Give us insights into thy word. Fill us with thy Holy Spirit. Humble us. Do thou increase and let us decrease, O God. And may the sweetness of self-annunciation and Christ-exaltation Fill us so that we can say with John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.